And welcome to the Pouring My Art Out podcast. This is episode 48, and I am calling it A Novel Approach Part 3, because it is part three of me reading snippets from my action-adventure romance war novel, The Princess Rebellion. I already used the cover art from the book with my younger daughter Molly as Princess Hildy, and for the second episode I used the map of the Seven Kingdoms from the beginning of the book, so I have to figure out what to use for this episode's artwork. Hey, 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 Arthur, it's Jenny. I like the way you put both of us in each piece of episode art. Me too, Jimmy. I don't know if every podcast platform shows these, but they are fun to do. Gotta love Photoshop. Okay, let's jump right in, shall we? And meet another new character. Hildy hated to break the spell of camaraderie, but time was of the essence. She sent them all off to find the triplets, King Aleph and Prince Nudge while she and Captain Reef went to get a longboat readied and lowered from the deck. A short time, a short row, and a short walk later, they were passing through the last houses and shops of Smiling Man Town and climbing the short hill towards the gates of the castle. As they neared them, a tiny little old woman wearing a wrinkled orange cloak came out of the gates to meet them on the road. She carried with her a short staff with which she felt the ground before her feet. Her gray hair, which was cut in a straight line above her brow and then dipped down to her shoulders on either side of her face, was noticeably thinning. Her skin was browned by the sun and incredibly wrinkled. Her eyes, which were a foggy gray and smoky with cataracts, were heavily lidded to the point where they almost could not be seen. She was stooped and thin and frail-looking and so short that there was not a person of any age in the group approaching her that had to look up at her. And yet there was a strength, a vitality, that was apparent to each of them. Queen Shylar Dubbin's smiling man stopped in the road in front of her castle gates and leaned on her stick, waiting until the group of visitors had reached her. She gazed directly ahead without looking at any of them. Hello, Hildred, dear. I must say, when I heard about you kicking that skull prince in his wineberries rather than marrying him, I had the best laugh I'd had in years. Then I heard you killed him, and I laughed even harder. You've been a busy girl. Hildy opened her mouth to speak, but the queen wasn't finished yet. Lorencia, you chose wisely to run off with your friend. Zarina, sorry about your husband. He was a nice young man. Aleph, I will miss your father. I hope you end up being half the man he was, but I'm not placing any wagers on that yet. Miri, Tam Tam, Andida, haven't seen you since you were babies, but you were all handfuls then, as I recall. Young Sonara, I think I am going to like you if half of what I have heard is true. And Prince Najim, well, I'm sorry to say that I have no use for any member of your family that I have ever met so far. I didn't like or trust your father from the time I first met him. I tried to tell people he was going to bring us all trouble, but nobody listens to an old woman, queen or not. I am, however, willing to reserve judgment on you, boy, but don't make me regret it. Again, Hildy opened her mouth to speak, and again the queen beat her to it. 
Hildy, I am putting all my forces under your command, and you might be surprised when I tell you what that means, because I have been busy too. I only wish this had all happened when I was your age, so I could fight the skulls myself. Now stop standing around with your mouths opening and closing like a bunch of fish, and let's go inside and start making some plans. Without waiting for an answer, the queen turned and started walking spryly back into her castle, tapping with her stick leaving the rest of them to scurry after her. Hildy found herself walking beside Nudge. He looked at her and gave a huge grin. I like her. I think we came to the right place. I mean, I know there was no place else we could go, but still I have a good feeling about this. Hildy returned the grin. She had been thinking the same thing. Queen Shylar Smiling Man was fun to make up and fun to write about. I love her no-nonsense attitude and her incredible foresight. Let's move forward a little. They stopped at the top of the hill, looking back at the scurrying clusters of orange-clad troops. They certainly are colorful, aren't they? Lowry observed. I was just thinking the same thing, Hildy replied, smiling at her friend. I had been toying with the idea of getting some dyes and splashing splotches of the colors of all the kingdoms on everybody's uniform. We would look like an army of rainbows, but I thought it would show that we were all in this together. But now I am thinking back to right after the Battle of Evergreen when we were wandering through the woods gathering up the survivors. The Evergreen soldiers in their green uniforms were hard to spot in the woods. Lowry saw immediately where this was going. Yes, we all need green uniforms. Yes, exactly right, Hildy said, excited by this idea. Because I don't plan to fight the skulls in big lines and open fields any more than I have to. I foresee ambushes and raids and -and hit-and-run attacks. So it would be better to be able to blend in. I am putting you in charge of finding all the green dye you can and figuring out how to make more. We are going to need a lot of it. Oh, and we can use different shades of green dye, make the uniforms splotchy, just like we were talking about, but they will look like leaves in shade and shadow. We will be like walking bushes. Lowry was positively aglow with excitement. I knew you were the person for this job, Hildy said with a laugh. It's your artistic nature. And you always did like clothes. They turned and continued their walk to the port. They found a boat to row them out to the wave bounder. Before they had even finished climbing over the rail, the Castor brothers were shouting excitedly down at them. We had the best idea, bellowed Tolly. It was my idea, yelled Tall. Well, he got it because of me, roared Tolly. You can both stop yelling in my face, Hildy said quietly from where she hung just below the railing, her head only a short distance from theirs. We were training with the spears, just like you told us to, Tull said to her, reaching out to help her over the rail. And I can't beat him often because he is bigger than me, broke in Tolly, helping Lowry aboard. So I pretended to throw my spear at him. And then I remembered when we were little, Tull continued, before our dad let us go out on the boat with him. We used to fish near the shore by throwing small pointed sticks. We would split the ends of the sticks with a knife and carve little barbs on the points. We tied strings to the sticks so we could pull the fish back to us when we stuck them. You know our spears are too big and heavy to throw well, and even if we did, then we wouldn't have them to fight with anymore, Tolly tried to explain. 
Tull wasn't giving him the chance. But the slings are sort of hard to use when you are close to other people. You have to spread out, and they are really bad for using on the ships with all the ropes and masts and so little room. Tully leapt back into the verbal onslaught once again. And in the woods, with branches and bushes and things, or in narrow city streets, little spears would be better. Tull sent his next volley. Each of us could carry three or four little metal-tipped barbed spears and use them when the enemy is close, like when they charge us or right before we charge them. Tully finished off the barrage. They might not kill anybody most of the time, being light, but imagine having one stuck in you. You wouldn't want to fight anymore. You would have to stop and pull it out, and the barbs would make that really hard to do. Hildy just shook her head and smiled broadly at these two boys who had been the very first recruits in her army. I think this is the best idea the two of you have ever had. I am making you both captains and putting you in charge of the throwing spears. Gather up your gear and get ready to come with us back to headquarters. You can see how more modern warfare is being invented right before your eyes. You can also see why I compared this war to our World War II. It is total mobilization, mass production, war at sea and on the land. Our little Hildy is turning into General Eisenhower, leading the Allied forces from the tiny island of Great Britain. Onward we go. I just figured it would be better for everybody to have some kind of armor than for only a few of us to have the slightly better armor, Lowry said. But take a good look at your new uniform shirt. You missed one little detail. Hildy did as she was told and noticed there were small round patches of red dyed cloth sewn on both shoulders of the shirt, as well as one on the left side of the front at chest level and another at the same height centered on the back. The patches were about as big around as a large coin, or if she formed a circle with her thumb and longest finger. In the center of each red circle was a black dot the size of a thumbprint, and crossing through that dot, a black X extended to the edges of the circle. It occurred to me as I watched the piles of uniforms growing in the sewing rooms, Lowry said, that in the old days all the soldiers knew who their captains and commanders were. But with an army the size that we will soon have, with soldiers from all over, that will no longer be the case. We came up with the idea of putting these rank insignia patches on all the officers' uniforms. They will be on the front and back of the armor, too, and the helmets. We make them in different colors so you can tell what the officer does as well as his rank, Nudge added. Yes, continued Aleph, we used red for the army and blue for the navy. And we just started making yellow ones when we heard what Sonara was up to for her fire troops. The look of love on his face when he mentioned Sonara almost caused Hildy to break out laughing. We had to change Commander Bloom's system of rank, Lowry explained. We are growing too fast. We used black X's for army troop commanders of 1,000 men, a black dot for troop captains of 100 men, and plain red patches for junior troop captains of 10 men. Fleet captains of 10 ships get a blue circle with an X, and the captain of a single ship gets the black dot. Junior ship captains, the second in command of a ship, get the plain circle. We are still working on the flame troop insignia. 
We probably will use a yellow circle with a black dot for fire troop captains of 100 men and a plain yellow circle for junior fire troop captains of 10 men. We aren't sure how many fire troops we will end up with and we can always change it later. But the best part of this is that you can just sew a new patch on when anyone gets promoted and people will know who they have to take orders from. And you get the red circle with the X and the dot because you are the commander of all of us, said Steven proudly. A system of ranking symbols for the vast army that is forming. These princesses are really on the ball. Take that, fairy tale princesses. Later that day, as Hildy read a report from Tsar telling her that she and the triplets should be returning the following day, she heard the Castor brothers shouting her name from outside the old farmhouse. She went outside to see what they were up to and spotted them standing nearby, facing a pair of dummies made from bundles of dry grass tied with string. The dummies had been tied to a pair of wooden posts pounded into the dirt. The brothers were each wearing the new uniforms, and those uniforms displayed the plain red patches of an army junior troop captain. Tull saw Hildy eyeing the patches. We told Lowry that you said we could be captains, he proclaimed grandly. Hildy nodded, conceding the point. Over their shoulders, the two boys wore strange contraptions. They were hollow tubes made of some kind of rolled tree bark, with ropes tied to them to allow them to be slung across a shoulder, Protruding from the tops of these tubes and sticking up well past the shoulders of each of the brothers was a bundle of wooden rods. The brothers exchanged grins and each reached an arm back, grasped one of these rods, and withdrew them from their carrying case. They were spears, but like none that Hildy had ever seen before. They were only a little more than four feet in length, and nearly half that length was made up of the metal tips. The tips had a wide, flared base where they fit over the wooden shaft, but then they tapered quickly into just a long, round bar that came to a sharp point near the business end. Along the bar, which was about as thick as a large man's finger, were many wicked-looking barbs that angled back towards the wooden part of the spear. It took us a while to get the balance right for throwing, Tull told her. We tried a lot of different lengths and thicknesses of wooden metal, but these fly just fine, said Tolly happily. Let us show you. They each took a stance and threw the spears at the two targets. They each hit the mark and each spear sank into its target all the way to the wooden shaft. Both boys let out a yell. Now go try to pull one out of the dummy, told Dairder. They followed her over and laughed as she tried tugging at the wooden part of one of the spears. She pulled it out of the dummy, but it wasn't easy. The backwards-pointing barbs, each half as long as her little finger, grabbed and caught at the dried grass and dragged long strands out with it. She shuddered as she imagined what it would be like to pull one of these spears out of a human body. The spears are pretty easy to make, and the carrying baskets are really easy. We already have two shops starting to make everything, and more will be set up soon, Tolly told her proudly. And the best part is that these spears are easy to use, no training required at all. Here, you try throwing a few, Tull insisted, taking his basket off his shoulder and handing it to her. She returned to where they had stood to throw their spears and gave it a try. She threw the whole basket full. She hit the target she was aiming at almost every time. The spears were light and the balance was good. 
And it doesn't matter where you hit someone, Tull said when her last throw ended up sticking into the lower leg of one of the dummies. That guy isn't going to be fighting anymore, not for quite a while. And the only way to get them out of a person without ripping them up is to push it right through and out the back, Tolly said, sounding almost gleeful about it. Hildy thanked them and told them to get back to work and get her as many of the new weapons as they could manage, as fast as it was possible to do so. Then she went back into the headquarters building, feeling cold inside and out. It is funny how a global war against a vicious enemy can really get the creative juices flowing and focus everyone's mind on helping to win a victory. I had another little idea that I have been playing around with, Czar informed her. A woman working in one of the uniform shops was injured. She had a nasty cut from one of the big blades they used to cut the long strips of cloth as they come off the looms. We had to call for a healer to sew up the side of her hand. One of the other women joked that she could sew at least as well as the healer, and it struck me all of a sudden that a lot of men are going to be needing sewing up before too much longer. I have been thinking the same thing, Hildy said somberly. Well, it takes years to train a healer because they have to know all about every kind of medicine, each herb and berry and root and how to deliver a baby or remove a bad appendix or get rid of warts. But what if we had healers who just learned the basic stuff to keep someone injured in battle alive until they could be carried to a real healer? You know, bandage wounds, stop the bleeding, put a splint on a broken bone, and even sew up a really bad wound. I got all the healers I could find in every town, and I had them start training all the volunteer soldiers I could gather up. A lot of men are just better suited for helping people than killing them. Before we came down the hill, I started the same thing in motion in Smiling Man Town. You are a genius, Hildy declared. The men have been practicing by sewing up dead fish, Czar told her with a laugh, and there are plenty of women volunteering too. Incredible, just incredible, Hildy said, shaking her head. Well, one healer told me that the most important thing of all when people are hurt is to start working on them as soon as possible. Stop the bleeding, give them medicine for the pain, keep them warm, and keep them from going into shock. So I figured, why not have the army healers right behind the battle lines where they can get to work on the wounded right away? And why not have other men with stretchers who can move the badly injured troops to the real healers as soon as they can be moved. And then I had my craziest idea of all. What if we set up tents not too far from where the battle is being fought, and we have the real healers there, ready to work on the wounded men as soon as they are brought in? You would be surprised how many of the healers have volunteered for this. Some of them were so old I had to politely figure out a way to turn them down. It was really quite moving. I pointed out that we would still need healers in all the towns to take care of the badly wounded soldiers while they were recuperating. Hildy was about to say something else complimentary to her friend when suddenly a young boy rushed into the room. Hildy recognized him as one of the Queen's young orphan messenger boys. One look at his pale, sweaty face and the way he was panting from obviously running all the way there from the castle told her that the news was not good. A skull fleet is landing troops on the beach not far from the mouth of Smiling Man Bay, Commander, the boy gasped after coming to attention before her. 
And there are an awful lot of them. Did we just see the beginnings of MASH units and combat medics? Is it really hard to believe that once war is no longer looked at as just a ritual, that people will begin to think about it in so many new ways? What with their own lives and the lives of those they love in mortal danger. But the thing I love is that women, girls really, are in charge, and it is their genius, their inventiveness, that is getting things done. Not to mention them fighting on the front lines. Here they come, she heard one of her men shout. She turned and yelled at her men to use their slings, but they were already doing that. A solid volley stopped the enemy momentarily, but they came on, spears lowered. Another volley dropped a good number of them. It was hard to tell how many of them there were, how many more were coming up behind them. Another volley of stones slammed into them. They reformed into a firmer line and moved forward. To Hildy, it looked as if they already outnumbered her men by nearly three to one. At least they didn't seem to have any slingers with them. The flames came out of nowhere. At first, it was just a small ribbon of fire reaching about the height of a man's knee and about as wide as it was tall. It sprang up out of the ground all at once, halfway between her troops and the advancing skulls. The skulls stopped dead in their tracks. Within moments, the line of fire grew until it was almost as tall as a man. Hildy had no idea what was going on, where these miraculous flames had come from, but she wasn't going to waste the opportunity. Keep those stones flying, she screamed. She could see the faces of the enemy soldiers over the wall of fire. They were confused and scared. They looked at one another, and she heard shouted orders. But a man will not run into the flames, no matter what his officers are yelling at him. The stones her soldiers were throwing kept raining into the packed lines of skull soldiers. At this range, the stones were moving fast and hard, and it was hard to miss them. Hildy could actually hear the stones pounding into the enemy amidst the screams and shouting. It dawned on her that the fire wasn't making any noise at all. She moved closer to the flames and held out a hand. She moved it closer and closer to the fire. There was no heat at all. She touched the flames. They were the same temperature as the air. She was unnerved. She turned back to encourage her men, and she happened to glance beyond them to where the triplets stood. They were still in a line. They were holding hands and swaying back and forth. Their eyes were closed, and they seemed to be mumbling to themselves. Behind her... She heard the screams and the shouting begin to recede, and she turned again. Over the wall of fire, she saw the enemy retreating back the way they had come. The fire still burned brightly. Hildy ran over to the girls. She said each of their names. The girls didn't respond. They just stood there, eyes closed, holding hands and swaying side to side. They were still muttering sounds and voices too low for her to make out any distinct words. She reached down and pulled Tam-Tam and Miri's hands apart. Tam-Tam, now separated from the other two, opened her eyes and looked around in confusion. Hildy stepped over and pulled Miri's hand from Andita's. They too opened their eyes and looked at her as if they had no idea where they were. We were so frightened, said Miri quietly. 
The skulls were going to kill us all, added Tam Tam with a quaver in her voice. We had to stop them, Mandita told her, but her voice was uncertain. So you did make the fire, didn't you? asked Tildy, still not sure what had happened. She thought back to the day she had first met Sonara and the story the farm girl had told them about the skull wizard and the shadow claw. The way the wizard had been muttering to himself and making strange gestures. That was how Sonara had described it. How he had conjured up a fearsome beast that wasn't really there at all. What fire? asked Miri, sounding more confused than Hildy was. Where did the skulls go? Andita demanded. My head hurts, Tam Tam complained. Hildy looked back to where her men still stood in a thin line, talking excitedly amongst themselves. The wall of fire was gone as if it had never been. The leaves and grass weren't scorched. No smoke hung in the air. I don't have time to figure this out right now, Hildy snapped. Follow me. She led them to the thin line of soldiers. Half of you stay here and watch for the skulls to come back, she shouted. Every other man come with me. We still have a battle to win. The first skirmish in the new kind of war, where Hildy is leading one small force of soldiers on the flank of the major battle now taking place in the valley below. A skirmish in thick woods on the crest of a hill, poor visibility and untried tactics. But luck, and perhaps magic, is on her side. And I love the triplets. They are very young girls, but will play a huge part in the war, if they can learn to master their new and unexpected talents. But mostly, the triplets crack me up because they have way too much energy and constantly talk over one another. Okay, that's it for now. I am going to focus on some music episodes next. Someday, I will probably read more from this novel to you and more of my sci-fi series and excerpts from my World War II murder mystery set in London. I have no way of knowing if any of you are enjoying the book episodes, or any of the episodes for that matter. Please contact me on my Facebook Pouring My Art Out page. At least let me know if you can find it. I'm sure I am missing comments somewhere. Is there a place on the various podcast apps that I don't know about? Does Buzzsprout, the podcast hosting site, have a page for me full of comments I haven't found? I will try to find out. I want feedback and I want some of you to record WAV files for parts of upcoming episodes. Sorry, I am so bad at the tech stuff. Alrighty. Bye, people. Okay, bye, people.